Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, and today episode focus on genocide studies. My name is Yakir Englander, your host, and today we will speak on the book Testimonies of Resistance, published in 2018. The Zonder Commando, the special squad of enslaved Jews laborers who were forced to work in the gas chambers and crematoria of Auschwitz-Birkenau, comprise one of the most fascinating and troubling topics within Holocaust history. In this dialogue, Professor Dominique Williams will help us to understand that who are these Zonderkommando and how we can learn about them. We will focus on the cruelty of the Nazis to demand from Jews to do this role, and also about the complexity of the role itself. We will think together about the testimonials of the new of the few survivors who survive from this unit, the Holocaust, but also on the hiding writings and art, some of them hide and left for us, and much more. Professor Dominique Williams edited this volume of articles together with Nick, Professor Nicolas Cher. Together, they also co-authored two more books on the same subject, Matters of Testimony and the Auschwitz Sonderkommando. Professor Williams is senior lecturer in Holocaust and Genocide Studies at North Umbria University. Um, so welcome, Dominique. And my first question is, can you share with our audience what have made you to choose to do to dedicate your research to the question of the Zonderkommando? Well, I, I can blame it all on Nicholas Chair. Um, my, my background is in, um, I guess, initially in literature. Um, I did a PhD, which was um, a literature PhD. It was at the Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Leeds. Um, but it was about English literature, early um, 20th century. Um, Nick Chair, um, who also studied at Leeds, came to me after we'd finished our PhDs um, and said, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a topic that I'm interested in um, doing more research on. I'd done a little bit on it before, um, which was the writings of the Auschwitz on the Commando, the scrolls of Auschwitz. Um, and he said, you know, would you be interested in working on this with me? And my initial thought was, well, I'm not really sure that I do want to. It's it's very, very difficult material, right? Um, I'd done some work in my master's, my MA on the Holocaust and thought, mm, I'm not sure if this is for me. But um, in the end, he persuaded me that this was this was something would be worthwhile for us to work on together. Um, so we, we co-authored a book about the, the writings of the Zonder Commando, uh, Matters of Testimony, which Berghahn Books also published. And then um, following up on that, we found that there were still questions that we were uh, we wanted to ask, that we thought needed to be investigated. And so that's that's meant that we're, we've carried on publishing about it. Um, the Auschwitz Zonder Commando, um, which we published with um, Palgrave Macmillan, is about um, post-war testimony from the Zonder Commando. And then Testimonies of Resistance, um, this recent edited collection, um, has got a, a group of scholars together, an international um, set of scholars together to write about uh, some of the questions that you know we, we 
felt still needed to be discussed. And can you share with us, Dominique, about the title? Um, you called it Testimonies of Resistance. Can you share with us a little bit about the term, like, why did you choose the resistance? Well, I think resistance is, is really important when we're thinking about the Zonda Commando for, um, well, for a number of reasons, but I, get, I, I guess we could flag up two. So one is, firstly, that it's an important way in which people have thought about them. Okay, it's part of their image. It's not the only image of the Zonda Commander, but it's one image of them, which is to say that they are famous for the uprising that happened in October 1944 in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, and it's one of the things that is, that is known about them. Um, and the other thing, and this is partly the reason why we've called it Testimonies of Resistance, is that um, something that they're much less well known for um, is writing these testimonies, writing the scrolls of Auschwitz, the documents that they buried in the grounds of the crematoria, describing what they'd seen, uh, what they felt about, um, what they were co-opted into, into being part of this process of mass murder. Um, and those testimonies are also a form of resistance. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind also that the testimony doesn't only take written form, there are also photographs, of course, and those are quite famous as well. But those are photo photographs that were taken by um, one member of the Zonda Commando, helped by another um, set of people from the Zonda Commando, that were testifying to that, that process of mass murder and that were um, also, in doing that, attempting to resist it. Thank you. So I would love if we can start um, from beginning, which is... Dominique, can you, can you help us to understand better what exactly is a Zonderkommando? Um, who, when you, when you work on this subject, who are part of this group? Um, and also, um, in which camps do we speak about? What will be the definition of a camp that we speak about Zonderkommando? And maybe the last question is, when we start using this term? Right, okay, so... Um... I mean, there are different ways to use the term Sonderkommando. Firstly, I mean, in German, it just means something like special squad. So it doesn't mean anything particular. And that's deliberately euphemistic, as a lot of um, these kind of terms are. I mean, okay, the process of yes. um, of murdering uh, gas chambers is Sonderbehandlung, special treatment. Uh, the final solution, okay, is also a, a euphemism as well. And so it's, it's a term that was used for more than one group and that includes groups of perpetrators as well um, so it, it doesn't have one fixed set de definition but what it's often used for um, is to describe groups of prisoners in a number of different camps um, extermination sites so places like Treblinka, Sobibur, Auschwitz-Birkenau prisoners who were forced to um, assist in some way with the process of, of, of murder. Now, in some of those other camps, places like Treblinka, Sobibor, those, those terms are used um, by historians and, and, um, and people about them, um, but are not always completely contemporaneous. They weren't used at the time. Um, whereas as far as Auschwitz-Birkenau is concerned, the group were 
called the Zonda Commando as they were part of the, the Zonda Commando. So you see in their testimonies, for example, they describe themselves and they write down this word Zonda Commando. So it's used in different ways. And the way that we've um, decided to define the term for this collection, okay, it's not to say it's, it's the it's the only way that it could be done. But for this collection, we decided to define the term by that group in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, and it's uh, that group that we've concentrated on. And we say a little bit in the introduction as to why that is, because there are certain things that are particularly different about them. There's a larger number of survivors. There's a large amount of testimony about them. And also, actually, I would say they're a group that are, that are more notorious um, in a lot of ways, because they were part of a much larger camp complex and so were witnessed by other prisoners. And so there were stories and thoughts about them from other prisoners within Birkenau at the time. I mean, okay, rumours circulated around the camp. Strange representations of them were happening even while the camp was in operation. So we're looking at that that particular group and the, the, the Zonda Commando there uh, was a group that was formed um, and changed a little bit as, as um, Auschwitz-Birkenau developed, but in its sort of, well, I suppose what you might call its classic formation was the group that were in Birkenau and that worked in the crematoria of Birkenau. There was a group that worked in Auschwitz one in the crematorium that's there. Philip Muller famously worked there for a short while and then um, after working elsewhere for a while, transferred to the, the crematorium beer canal. But the, the group um, of which the, the vast majority of survivors come from, I mean, it's still a small number of survivors, but in relative to, to uh, because to of the, the other system, system. Dominic, because of the system that every few months the, the Nazis will kill them. Right. So this is one of the, this is one of the interesting um, things that we, we've dealt with, with this, this image of this on the, Commando. Now, of course, it is absolutely true that the Zonda Commando were subject to um, murder, and um, squads were the numbers were were taken down or, or increased as as they were found to be useful. But there does not seem actually to have been this systematic replacement of them every three or four months that you hear in some of the, the stories about them. I mean, I think I suppose most famously there's the the doctor who was stationed in. Um, in the crematorium, Miklos Nisli uh, writes in his testimony, yes, there were, they were replaced en masse every three or four months, but that doesn't seem to have been quite the case. If you look, for example, at Gideon Greif's book, where he's um, interviewed members of the, the Zonda Commander who survived, a lot of them survived for much longer than three or four months. If you look at the um, group of prisoners that we concentrated on, where we uh, looked at testimony that they'd written. Again, there are a number of them who only one of those who who wrote the, of the writings survived um, of the writings that have been found. Only one of them himself survived, but a lot, all of the others uh, survived for longer than just three or four months. So, for example, Zaman Grodowski, Zaman Leventhal, Leib Langfuss. Um, all seemed to have survived until um, came to Auschwitz-Birkenau in 1942, December 1942, and all survived until late 1944. Um, Grodowski seems to have died in the, the uprising um, in October 44. Leventhal and Langfuss seem to have been killed when there were uh, there was another purge of the Zonda Commando in November 1944. 
Um, so there are there, there are prisoners who lasted for much longer than this, which in the end is a kind of legend, right? Of of just this three or four months. Thank you. So, Dominique, can you um, share with us a little bit about the way how a person become part of the Zonder Commando? Is it something that, and, and I'm interested mostly um, from the moments where people know about the Zonder Commando, but they still are or chosen or forced to be chosen to join this group. Um, and I also wonder if it's like one way, like you can join to the Zonder Commando, but then you stay there, or is it more um, fluid that you can come back and leave this unit? Yeah, I mean, it, I think that's, that's a good question, is, is there one way to join? And I don't think that there is. Um, so there are different accounts from different people as to, as to how it happened. The, the most common experience seems to have been, and this again is at the point when the, the crematorium beer canal were uh, um, in operation, the most common way seems to have been that people who were new arrivals at the camp possibly having spent um, a week or so um, in quarantine, were chosen immediately after that and, and put to work straight away. So, um, and the logic of that seems to have been, and some of them write about it this way, um, that it was something that took them by complete surprise. They were taken to somewhere where they had to um, deal with emptying a gas chamber, a, a set of dead bodies, the shock, the horror of dealing, uh, of confronting that site, quelled any sense of resistance, was sort of too much for them really to comprehend at that, that point. They're then forced un, un, under beating and whips, Leventhal writes about this, uh, to clear those bodies. And it's only um, after... They've carried out this work, work um, in a sense in inverted commas. A lot of um, them afterwards said, you know, work is not the word for this, but only after they carried out this work that they were in a position to be able to process anything like what had happened to them. Um, so that that certainly seems to be the case for a, um, for most of the people who are the um, people who wrote the, the manuscripts, the, the scrolls of Auschwitz, that they were recruited very soon after arrival. But it's not necessarily true for every single um, um, every single member of the Zonda Commando. Um, and the, the question that you're asking about the fluidity, again, it would seem that once it had taken its... Um, once the camp regime had worked out what form they wanted this squad to take... It was very, very rare for someone in the Zonda Commander to be able to come out of it. Everybody who was in was in. And the only way out would be by being um, killed or by, by dying. And the reason is um, that the Nazis didn't want them to to bring right. the witness the, the stories. Right. Right. So they did not want uh, people who were witnesses to mass murder, witnesses to genocide. I mean, they were eyewitnesses to many, many thousands of deaths. They did not want them to be uh, able to, to bear witness to what it is that they'd seen. In the earlier forms, there are people who seem to have moved in and out of the, the squads. Um, and that actually is true for Philip Muller, for example, that he was in the squad in Auschwitz 1 and then um, moved out yeah. um, 
said he was stationed in Buna, Auschwitz III for a short while, and then went back into the, the, the Zonda Commando after that. But that, I think, is in, in its early stages, well, when the process is still being worked out, improvised by the, by the, the Germans, by the, by the camp regime. By the time most of the people that we're, most of the people who are survivors, most of the people who, who wrote the, the manuscripts were within the squad. They were um, recruited very soon after arrival and had no way out other than their own deaths. Yeah, thank you. One of the chapters, um, actually it's the first chapter, which is fascinated by Professor Pollock, but it's a question that's also coming all during the the um, the book, is a question of cruelty. And, and we have here maybe um, three areas of cruelty and, and, and questions of violence. Um, one is, of course, um, the, the violence by the Nazis um, to the victims and to the Zonderkommando. There are questions of ethics about the work of the Zonderkommando. And, of course, the third circle is the other, the other prisoners in these camps and how they received and how they think about the Zonderkommando. Can you, can you explain us a little bit more about this complex question of cruelty and violence? Yes. I mean, I think Griselda Pollock's essay is a, is a really powerful and fascinating explanation of, of this question. Um, so, I mean, as, as I said when talking about the recruitment of the Zonda Commando and as what you see in some of their writings, um, there is violence, um, direct physical violence carried out by um, German um, guards, SS guards, two members of the Zonda Commando in order to um, keep them at their work. But it's not something that was used with the same kind of um, regularity or extremity in, a, in most cases, as, as you saw in the rest of the camp, because these were people who they wanted to keep fit and well and carrying out a process that, as far as they were concerned, a murderous process, but a process that the, the Germans saw as useful. Okay, they had a useful function. So there is physical violence. It's not to say that there, there, was, there was none that was carried out against members of the Zonda Commando by SS guards. But, and I think um, Pollock brings this out really well in the essay, there is another kind of violence that's being done to them, which is the cruelty of being forced to violate their own ethical precepts, violate their own religious beliefs in disposing of the dead in making sure that there is no trace left of them. Um, and I think Pollock talks very um, powerfully and at length at this idea of being forced to burn bodies was something that caused them particular kind of horror and particular pain. Um, and that, I think, is interesting also in that it seems to have also been something that other prisoners were particularly horrified by. So there's a memoir by Kristina Zivulska, um, I Survived Auschwitz, where she talks about talking to a member of the Zonda Commando. Um, and the thing that she says, she sees him initially as um, basically subhuman. Um, and the thing that she says and the reason why she finds him beyond the kind of moral pale is you burn bodies. Okay. So it's not that she's saying, right, you're helping to... Uh, you're helping people to be murdered, 
right? Because there was a function that the Zonda commander partly had, just they, they were allowed or they were made to stand in the undressing room while um, victims were undressing. They weren't allowed to talk to the people there, but the SS regime essentially found that that was a way to keep people as they were undressing karma, right? So they are, in some sense, made complicit in keeping people calm and more easy to um, more easy to murder. But what she, what Kristina Zhivulska finds particularly horrific about what they're doing is, is what they're doing to, to bodies that they're, they're burning them. So in a sense, I, I think I would say, and I don't think this is what Dr. Pollock herself explores, but I, I think what you see there is, is a kind of violence that is done to the Zonda commander by making them kind of moral outcasts um, in the eyes of other, other prisoners. So it's something that's a violence that's done, that's internalised on themselves. They feel, um, again, in some of the writings you see, they feel a kind of uh, guilt or disgust of themselves in, at times, but they also are provoking that in, in other prisoners as well. So it's a very difficult position that, that, that they're in. It's a very difficult question to assess um, their own judgment of themselves, prisoners' judgments of themselves, and how it is that we're supposed to be judging or not judging them um, retrospectively as, as scholars or as people thinking back to um, the Holocaust. Um, I, w- I wonder if, you can, um, if we can say a little bit about the act of burning, and I wonder if the focus is on the act of burning um, maybe because of two reasons, as I understand. One is that the act of burning is an, this is a place where they shift from being passive, like just helping, to doing the act of violence to the bodies. And also, secondly, because the act of burning is actually the witness for what is happening, because the prisoners in Auschwitz or in other camps maybe are not aware of the gas all the time, but the smell of the burning is a, wit- is, is a witness for the violence. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, um, which I don't think I don't think we've actually ex- ex- explored uh, as much as we probably could have done in in the book. But I think that's a so that's a really really interesting question. Yes, I mean I I think you I think you're right that um, that kind of disgust that you see, for example, in in Javul's school, this self disgust, um, does seem to ha- uh, could be said to to focus on this this moment. Precisely because it is something where you're doing something, um, I think that that's quite that's quite plausible. Um, and I think too, um, I mean, Javulska when she's she's writing about seeing this member of the of the Zonda Commando, she talks about him being covered in um, covered in ash. And there are other people who've, who've um, witnessed uh, members of the Zonda Commando also said that you know they were black from the the, the burning that they were carrying out. Um, which also made them kind of look strange and um, and then a, a kind of figure of horror. So that was something that was on their bodies themselves. But exactly as you say, it's also something that becomes um, the signal of what the what's going on at the crematoria, and that's uh, that everybody can see and smell. I mean, particularly smell right. um, in the region around. I mean, um, and. That idea that it could be a form of witness mm-hmm. um, is something that members of the, the Zonda Kamala themselves did um, think about. Um, Zalman Grodowski, in one of the texts that he wrote, uh, 
talks about how the the uh, the fire that's burning in the crematoria is something that the world should see and that's something that the world should be drawn to. So it's it's a way um, that they were thinking about it as well. I think so. That that's a very very interesting and, and, and valid point from you. Thank you. Um, so the majority of the book focuses on questions of um, wit of um, evidence and 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 history and how we think about the Zonder commando and I really love the way how you divided the book to in a way I mean you have um four four um, um, it divided to four parts but the three of them is about evidence from the time of the war then we have the evidence of the retrospective when we think about that and when they witness after that about um, what happened there and then we have the cinema and 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 we have literature right um and I wonder if you can help us because the question of the of history and the Holocaust is so complicated so can you can you share with us a little bit more about like what do we find um or which kind of voices we hear more and during the war and which voices we hear in the retrospective when survivors of the Zonder Commando or people who are witnessing the Zonder Commando they share? Right. I'll, I'll answer it in this way. We'll, we'll see if it answers your, your question. Um, I mean, one of the things that we were very interested in when we, we, we wrote about the Zonder Commando's manuscripts was the fact that these seemed like key pieces of testimony about uh, the Holocaust, about the Shoah. But there seemed to be very little interest in them. Hardly anything had looked at them in any, any great detail. They do get mentioned, okay, they, they appear in histories. Um, but the, there's very little engagement with how it is that they're written. And if you look at them, there's some, there's, it's very, very striking that they're written in this um, often very highly literary or would-be literary way. Um, so one of the questions that we were asking that sort of driven us on to do these other books is to think well what is it that has stopped people from reading these manuscripts and so one of the things obviously I think has been this sense of uh, horror and disgust um, but also fascination right at this group um, which has meant either that people aren't interested in it in in talking about them or are interested but in a way that doesn't really you help them to engage with the kind of manuscripts that, that the Zonda Commando wrote. Um, so I think what I'd say is what, if you're looking at what the, the, the Zonda Commando themselves write, what you see or what they're producing themselves um, during the, the, the time that the, the beer canal is in operation, when the, when the crematoria are, are in operation, is a very complex picture, one that says, Uh, that there are times when they are uh, unfeeling numb completely shocked and unable to process what's happening to them but that there are other times when they are able to reflect on it and they are able to feel certain things about what's happening and I think in the way that we would read it certainly that's one of the things we argued in matters of testimony I think one of one of the things that's happening is they're thinking about how they can make their readers feel what's happening or what's happened to them Um, and so that's a that's much more complex set of how they how they think about their experiences and how they feel and feel through their experiences than I think a lot of the 
post-war ways of thinking of them have been. So we explore this to some degree in the introduction to the book, where we say, okay, there seem to have been shifts that have happened over time of how people have been interested, and that uh, from a, a kind of sense that the Zonda Commando might stand for a general suspicion of survivors, that people only survived because they'd done something dubious, to criticism of them as being too passive. And I think this is where this idea that um, it's not true that they were purged every, that they were liquidated every three or four months is quite important because someone like Bruno Bettelheim is able to say, well, there were 14 squads of the Zonda Commando, only one squad resisted, right? Everybody else just went to their deaths after four months. But that if you accept, and this seems to be what the evidence says, if you accept that that's not what the, the composition was like, then you have to take into account also that there's a complicated um, way in which they existed as the people who, who went along in an attempt to survive for a short, for some time, also resisted at others. Um, that then kind of, I think, changes changes the picture of, of what it is that um, what it is that you can say about the, the Zonda Commando. Um, and I think what we also say in that introduction is that the there seem to have been two moments. I mean, we identified one in the kind of mid eighties, so Showa, Claude Lanzmann's film, and a number of other texts that came out in the mid eighties seem to take an interest in the Zonda Commando, uh, particularly as Lanzmann is, is is concerned as precisely as witnesses, but witnesses of as he's defining it. Okay, so there's an interest in what he calls incarnation. Um, these moments, um, most famously. Um, of course, with show with Abraham Bomber, the, the barber, um, freezing while he's he's reenacting and cutting somebody's hair, um, and unable to go on talking about what had uh, what had happened to him while he was in Treblinka, but also with Philip Muller as well. This moment where he reaches silence and says, "Right, I want to I want to stop. I I just can't go on at this point." Um, so that kind of those kind of moments. Um, I'm looking at the Zonda Commando in a different way, but are not the same as um, I would say what you can see from the Zonda Commando's own manuscripts, because it's the, you can see there that there there are more um, complicated and more contradictory things that that are happening than um, than I think Lonsman teases out in his film. Powerful and extraordinary as that film is, and. We've seen very recently, in, in uh, particularly, I suppose, in, in, in Son of Saul, the film, um, another interest in the Zonda Commando, which seems to be partly about a willingness now to address some of the more difficult issues of, of the Holocaust um, that have been addressed at other times previously, but seem to be much more central to how people are thinking about and, and talking about the, the Holocaust now. I mean, one example of that, of course, is that Son of Saul won an Academy Award, right? He got an Oscar. Whereas if you think of the kind of Oscar-winning Holocaust films from not that much earlier than that, Schindler's List, Life is Beautiful, they were giving a much... I mean, it's unfair in some ways to call it easier, but okay, in some ways, a much easier view of uh, of the Holocaust than, um, than Son of Saul. Or perhaps we could say less difficult. Part in, in the book, um, and there is a, a whole um, chapter about the religious life of the Zonder Commando, um, because as we see from um, the, the witnesses, um, we are learning that 
we have people who are religious and people who are non-religious uh, atheists in, um, in, in the same units. And I wonder if you can share with us, um, as the editor of the book, um, what you take from that, like what we can learn about the meaning of being a religious person as part of the Zonderkommando. Um, there are, as someone, I mean, my, my field is um, Jewish ethics and, and Jewish law. So there are many halakha, the Jewish law, about questions in the Holocaust. Not so many about the Zonder Commando, which is fascinating that, I mean, I mean, how many rabbis, but fr from what I learned from the, reading this fascinating book, we have there people who know the Jewish law and they have deep Jewish spirituality. And I wonder if you can sum to us um, what is what does it mean to be for them a religious person in 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 the Zondir Commando? I mean, I think um, I should admit first of all that this is not my my specialism, and, and you're, you're talking partly about um, Gideon Greif's chapter there, talking about the the religious life of the, the Zonder Commando. Um, so I would want to approach my answer to you here with with a certain degree of of, of caution. Um, but I suppose we, we could certainly say for a start that it's important to recognize the, the variety of experiences within the Zonda Commando and that there are people who are very religious and, and continue to be religious um, while they're in the Zonda Commando, just as there are other people who are, who are not. Um, so that's one thing. I think another thing I would say is um, seeing people maintain religious life um, also is important for us to understand, uh, important for us in our understanding of the Zonda Commando, because some of that is simply about a, an attempt to maintain an everyday life, an everyday existence, okay, um, which, however distorted and strange and horrific it is, is something much more than this image that we have and I think even a film like Son of Saul portrays it to some degree, this image that we have of them as, as just a, a set of zombies. Okay, they are people who are thinking and feeling and trying to live lives as, um, in some sense, as best they can. Okay, um, and that is part of what their religious life is about. I think also, and, um, you know, and I, I, think, I think Gideon Greif brings that out very well in, in that chapter by him. I think also what I what I could add is that looking at the manuscripts that the, the Zonda Commando wrote, one of those uh, um, one of the writers, Blaise Blankfuss, uh, was someone who had rabbinic training. He was a rabbinic judge, a Diane, and certainly as we would read it, and I think someone who was better versed in um, the religious traditions that that he's that uh, Langfuss is coming from, but we made a start, I hope. But as we would read it, um, there are certainly ways in which his religious knowledge or his um, cultural, religious, social background work through the the way in which he's able to write about and represent and bear witness to what he had what he had seen. So, for example, there are. Um, a set of very small anecdotes, you could almost call them, that he writes about how people behaved on the, the uh, on the threshold of the gas chamber. And he calls that details, Einzelheiten um, in Yiddish. And he, um, he seems to use traditions of storytelling 
and some people who um, survived and talked about him called him a storyteller, called him a preacher, a magid, um, who's he seems to be using traditions of storytelling in the way that he structures those stories of how people behave. And you also see, I mean, he he's clearly has uh, interest in religious figures. He talks about um, different religious figures and how they behaved. And he certainly seems to feel that people who were religious um, behave better than people who are not. He contrasts an, an intellectual who seems to believe, even as he enters the gas chamber, that this it couldn't really happen with religious figures who are able to face up to it. Um, but that, that I would say, you know, shows that it's his set of understanding has shaped how he understands what's, what's going on. His, his background has shaped what he, how he understands what's, what he's witnessing, but also allows him to bear witness to it in, in a particular form that makes sense to him and that, you know, would allow readers to make sense of as well. Another thing that really come, I mean, as, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about the, the geography of the people who are in the Zonder Commando, right? We have people from Greek and people from Hungary. We have here complexity of languages. We have complexity of um, culture, um, complexity of people who come much earlier and people who only came later in 44 and, um, and, and later. Um, can you share with us about, so when we say Zonder Commando, we actually see many variety of colors from different geography places. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's important to remember. Um, so as you say, there, there are groups who were from, uh, from Poland. Um, so a lot of the people who, who wrote the, the scrolls about, um, of Auschwitz were from um, Polish backgrounds from um Northeast Poland or from um, just north of, uh, of Warsaw. Um, and they are people who were there for the longest um, in that they came in, in late 1942. The, the group that preceded them, and this I think might be part of where these stories about complete liquidation come from, do seem to have almost entirely been murdered just before um, these... Polish Jews came um, came to Birkenau in December forty two, and those were mainly from Slovakia. Philip Muller is the example here of someone who survived. There are um, as one other person who's, who's a survivor there. As far as I'm aware, it's just the two of them. But um, the uh, so there's this group that are there from December forty two, and then other groups come and are added to that that squad as. The operations in the crematoria expand, and then it's um, if when there are moments when operations um, come down or are, are, are less um, intensive, where the squad is 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 brought down in its numbers. Um, but precisely because there are people who are there for quite a long time, and other people are brought in, you end up with a, a squad that's very mixed. So Polish. Exactly as you say, people who are then coming from um, France. A lot of those were Polish Jews. Um, one of the people who um, wrote a letter, who we've now identified um, as Hermann Strasvogel, Strasvogel, I guess, um, who was originally from Poland but um, had, had settled in France. Um, 
was part of that group. David Oler, um, a painter who um, drew sketches of the crematoria, painted paintings about his uh, experience in the Zonda Commando, was part of that group as well. And then groups from, exactly as you say, Hungary, um, as in um, 1944, in the summer of 1944, the Hungarian Jews are, are brought in. Um, Hungarian Jews are also recruited into the Zonda Commando. There seem to be very few survivors from that group. Um, so that's it's, in some ways, um, one of the more mysterious experiences. But we shouldn't forget also the Greek Jews, exactly as, as you mentioned as well. Um, the last document from the, the scrolls by uh, Marcel Najari uh, was um, uh, the last one to be found, found in 1980, was by him, written in Greek. And there are other survivors of the, of the um, Greek Jews of the Zonda Commando who talk often about being outcasts among the Zonda Commando because they couldn't speak Yiddish, because they couldn't therefore understand German. They were given the worst tasks. You also see the different memories of the experience, different memories of the revolt. Greek Jews will often talk about it was the Greeks who were responsible for the revolt. Polish Jews, you see in their writings, saying it was the Poles who did it. Okay, so in a sense, there's nothing unusual here. If you bring a group of people who are from different backgrounds, there will be frictions between them. And under the kind of extreme pressure that they're living, um, then those, um, those frictions will, of course, be worse, more deadly in some ways, more... Um, more painful. But I think it's also worth bearing in mind, um, and although that is, I think, primarily the way that um, people have talked about the, the difference between these groups, there are ways in which alliances or friendships happened across national boundaries. So, for example, the French Jews were generally of Polish background, generally had been born in Poland. Um, and so they spoke Polish, sometimes spoke they had a way to communicate. Right. But they also spoke French. And a lot of Greek Jews, or certainly some of the Greek Jews, um, were um, educated to speak French as well. And so the, the, the French Jews were able to um, befriend and, um, and work with the Greeks. And there's some element of communication possible that goes between the French, the, the Greek Jews, the French Jews, the Polish Jews. So, you know, that's that's not to say that they were all um, getting on. Let's say it clearly was, you know, under the horrific conditions they were living. But clearly, there were frictions there and resentments there. But you do see records of friendships. There's record of friendship in uh, Marcel Najari's letter where he talks about, um, um no. That's wrong. <laughs> you see, you do see ev evidence of that in Hermann Strasbourg's letter, uh, the French, le the French um, letter, where he talks about a friendship with a Greek Jew, Leon Cohen. Um, and you do see in the memoirs of, of uh, Greek survivors, so Marcel Najari in his memoir talks also about being friends with Her Hermann Strasbourg. So he, uh, there clearly were ties that went across national boundaries that, that you can see. Thank you. So my last question is, uh, it's, it's a hard one because it's a question about ethics. Um, so you have some chapters that are dealing with the question of the memory of the Zonder Commando. And we see the changes in the ways of memory of, of this uh, unit. Um, we have it in the museum 
in Auschwitz, you have a chapter about that dedicated to that. You have, of course, you just mentioned the, the fascinating um, um, movie that I think shake all of us who watch it, uh, um, Soul Sun. Uh, you have the Gray Zone um, movie, of course. Um, you have in Israel, there is um, there are not a lot in literature about the Zonderkommando in, um, in literature, but you have a um, beautiful and very sensitive short story by Savion Librecht, um, who I believe also was translated to English and to German, um, and where she um, speaks about um, a relationship between um, a father and his only uh, child, a, um, a, a young woman, who come back home one day and she says, um, Abba, father, I'm going to get engaged. And he's so happy for her. And then when the future son-in-law is coming to the house, he just faints because he sees a Zonderkommando um, from um you know from um um from the camp and and i wonder if you can help us um about what is the memory that we have about the zonder commando as you see it and do you feel that there need to be more change um do we need to walk to maybe another direction with some elements of this memory yeah i mean as you say this is this is a difficult question and i think one of the things that we're trying to explore and actually I think probably needs to be explored some more is the ways that the, the memory so far has been, um, let's say at least kind of problematic. So that, the, that sense of, okay, these are people I don't want to think about. I can't bear to think about is one element that, that is obviously a problem, but even the, the kind of interest in them takes a kind of form of a fascination that often is is problematic as well. Um, I mean, I guess, yes, I, I think one of the things that, that needs to be done, and I hope that we're trying to move towards, I think there are other people who've, who've done work in this area, Gideon Greif, for example. I mean, I think that um, Andreas Killian has, has done work with the, the Zonda Commando, Aurelia Kaliski in... Um, uh, has, has uh, done work with the, the, the writings of, of the Zonda Commando as well. But I think I think we need to engage with them more with the sense that they are damaged but fully rounded human beings. And that um, although there's one of the reasons why we're thinking about the Zonda Commando is because they seem to have been the victims of what Primo Levi calls the Nazis' most demonic crime. Okay. And to be able to understand that damage that's done to them by the by being forced into this moral position where they have to violate some of their most deeply held principles, there is still, I would say, too much emphasis on the question of damage. We knew, obviously we need to think of these as, you know, the, the harm that was done to them was was extensive, lasting, and and, um, and in some senses probably irreparable. But we need to think also about them as people who still had other human dimensions to them as well, both as they were living in the camp and as they were survivors. And I'd just say even one little detail, right, that's so, that, that recurs in the memory of the Zonda Commander, this idea that every three or four months they were liquidated. Uh, 
right? That sounds like it's just a, a detail of facts that um, might be wrong or it might not be. But what I tried to do in my essay on Lev is that the grey zone, uh, perhaps less clearly than, than I could have done. But what I tried to do in that was to say, well, actually, there seems to be a reason that people hold on to this idea. And it is that it makes the lives of the Zonda Commando much less, in a sense, much less understandable or much more um, strangely fascinating as well, which is to say, if you are presented with the choice, okay, you can die now or you can die in four months' time, and to live for that extra four months, you have to violate all the things that you hold most dear about yourself, that seems to be presented as just a moral choice. What is my life worth? What is four months of my life worth? But actually, what the members of the Zonda Commander were doing, insofar as they were able ever to make choices, and of course that's that's difficult, um, particularly at the moment of recruitment when they're, they're not fully aware of what it is that they're supposed to be doing and what's happening. But even so, at moments when they're asking the question, of, is my, is, can I carry on with my life? Actually, they were looking at um, a situation where they didn't know. They didn't know how much longer they had to live and so forth. So therefore, one of the things that they're asking is actually just a question about not what's my life, what's four months of my life worth, but what can I do possibly to give myself just a chance, a small chance of surviving? And I think that, in a way, is a lot more understandable um, than to be saying someone was faced with the choice of, you know you will die in four months, but you'll be able to live for four months if you do these particular things. So I think, you know, even, even these simple facts about the Zonda Commando are ones that I would say have a certain kind of moral weight to them. And I think it's important to, for us to get those facts right as well. But I, I think that is part of a picture where we need to be thinking about them as, you know, more than just the damage that was done to them. The damage is important, but the rest of who they are is important as well. Dominique, thank you so much for editing together with Nicolas Chair the book Testimonies of Resistance and for being with us here in the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you very much.